Welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Helicast. This episode of the Real Rescue is being sponsored by Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Coming up next in this episode of The Real Rescue, we're joined by a guy who's usually in the background of a search and rescue case in the RCC, the Rescue Coordination Center. This guy is the one that's taking the radio calls, the phone calls. He's picking up that phone to say, launch them, go get them, they need help freaking awesome. So in this episode, we talk about a little bit more where not only is it domestic, he's also into the international disaster and response. So he's a coordinator for all of that stuff as well. It's amazing. You guys are going to love this conversation. We had a blast. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Brad Milliken. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue. Today I've got a guy who is, this is really kind of cool for me because I haven't really had anybody on here that does a lot of disaster response management the whole nine yards, but we're going to get to that in a second. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brad Milliken, and he is prior U.S. Coast Guard search and rescue guy, and now he's doing disaster management relief internationally. Brad, welcome to the show, dude. <laughs> hey, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. This is this is awesome. Glad to be here. Dude, I'm psyched you're here, man. This is, this is great, um, and I really mean that. Like, I haven't had anybody on that talks about a lot of disaster management stuff going like broad scheme. We a lot of guys have come on here talking about Hurricane Katrina and the disaster relief that was there, other hurricanes and how assets were moved from this spot to that spot and whatnot. But I'm I'm really excited to hear what uh, how all this works and how you bring stuff to the table. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. It's uh, cool. it's cool. So I think like I mean. Disaster management, uh, I think, you know, at, at its most simple, simplest form is trying to answer two questions. So why do bad things happen and what do we do about them? Uh, and, you know, I, that's, that's super broad. Uh, <laughs> that is that's very like, broad. Pretty, yeah, <laughs> I think, but I think those are, you know, I think those are some of the most interesting questions, uh, you know, happening in the world today. So it's a cool space to work in. I dig it. I like it a lot. All right. Well, before we get that far, man, I need a little introduction. Get, give everybody a rundown, like who you are, where you're from, how you got into search and rescue, and then maybe even right into it, management, like the, the relief management stuff. Yeah. So uh, Brad Milliken, originally from outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, went to the went to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, uh, wanted to, to get into search and rescue kind of from the time I was in high school. Uh, before we get into the career stuff, I, I grew up sailing. Uh, I grew up racing sailboats. Uh, my you know, my parents sailed. We were very into it. I grew up living next door to our local sailing club. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a story of there's a microburst that came through. And I, I was probably in middle school. And uh, I remember like my dad and I were in the garage doing doing stuff that, that dads and sons do in the garage. And uh yeah, this like microburst hit and we knew that there were a bunch of boats out on the lake. And my dad and I like ran over to, uh, ran over to the sailing club, jumped in one of the boats and we like zoomed out and started like picking people, uh, picking people out of the water and, uh, you know, flipping boats back over and then you know, making sure everybody was okay. And, uh, yeah, I remember we like, man, this is so fucking cool. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> Uh, you know, and so I think, uh, you know, once, once you, once you get a taste, right. Like that's, 
you know, that that was kind of it for, you know, I'm sparking the interest in search and rescue. So, okay, how do you do this? The Coast Guard. Okay. You know, Coast Guard Academy wanted to go to college. All right. Like, we'll go do that. Uh, first, first tour in the Coast Guard was, was on a ship as kind of everybody's is and did the. Not mine. Uh, Not migrant. mine. Oh, okay. I was, yeah. I was not on a ship, dude. <laughs> <laughs> must must be nice. <laughs> but it, it was, was it was good. <laughs> it was uh, I mean, I think broadly you could you could kind of describe my career so far as you know, either depending on your perspective, either right place, right time or, or wrong place, wrong time, kind of in the disaster business. But uh so we we you know been able to do a couple cool things and uh did pretty well in that first tour, I was able to go do whatever I wanted to do. Uh, so went and, and got a wanted to do you know sector level search and rescue and was a search and rescue controller team leader SAR planner uh did that for for uh, a while while I was in the Coast Guard doing the the search and rescue coordination stuff um you know this took us through the 2015 16 17 hurricane seasons which were all real crazy uh got farmed out to a bunch of different responses that kind of piqued the interest in the the broader emergency and disaster management space. Uh, while I was still in the Coast Guard, went back to went back to school, got a degree in emergency and disaster management, and from there uh, left the Coast Guard. Worked for an organization called the Pacific Disaster Center. They're based in Maui, in Hawaii. Uh, and I was in outside of D.C. and I did a couple things for them. I think. First, uh, I managed their response team for Latin America and the Caribbean. So when we were going to go, you know, respond to a problem, uh, I'd be one of the folks leading the team. When there was nothing to respond to, we would go work with other countries like FEMA equivalents, their national disaster management organizations. Cool. And we would do research, basically. Uh, we would collect data. We would work with these folks uh, doing a bunch of different stuff. So the the piece of the island was the disaster management analysis. So we would we would go through and look at you know how they were you know assessing you know why do bad things happen and what are we going to do about them. And there was a manner of are you you know are you doing this correctly? Are are these mechanisms you're you're using effective? Something I thought was really interesting was uh, when we think about you know. Uh, a community's coping capacity so the things that they're able to do without any you know government intervention and then there's the uh, uh, the other side the government intervention piece so i uh, did a lot of work in the bahamas and you know i would say the average bahamian knows more about hurricanes than you know most meteorologists right <laughs> so high level of coping capacity they totally. know what's, they know what's happening they know what to do but it's not because anybody's like instructing them or because they're receiving alerts or anything, um, which is, yeah, that was an interesting thing to work on. Was in the Bahamas for Hurricane Dorian, rode out the storm in, in Nassau in their National Emergency Operations Center, worked alongside uh, the National Emergency Management Agency for that response. Uh, and then moved from, from that role and very response focused, uh, still with PDC, but uh, at the National Guard Bureau uh the emergency management advisor to their their chief of operations uh and that was like right at the onset of covid uh which was like kind of a wild time especially they they treated everything as you know as an emergency management event effectively as a continuity uh, yeah, yeah. uh so we kind of got put in the the forefront of of helping folks make sense of it all uh, was in the, the National Guard Bureau Joint Operations Center uh, <laughs> through January 6th, which was real crazy. Um, I'm sure of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, after the National Guard Bureau, so I did that for about a year. And then uh, I went over to the White House and I was an emergency management specialist, planning section chief uh, in the White House Operations Center, um, which, yeah, there's that that's a whole thing. <laughs> and that was that was super cool had a really good time there uh yeah really interesting place to work did that for a little over a year and and now i'm back in kind of the international disaster management uh space with a, a non-governmental organization called global support and development uh running our maritime program so focusing on uh, disaster response disaster preparedness in the caribbean oh my gosh <laughs> that's a lot Man, talk about like a you you mentioned earlier, a very broad area. You 
Wow. Wow. You've gone, you've gone crazy. This is awesome. Good for you. Solid. Yeah. It's been, yeah, it's been, it's been cool. It's been a ride. Right on. I dig it. All right. Well, let me, let me bring it back to Coast Guard real quick because you yeah. know, I mean, the real rescue, I, I got to hear a rescue story. I know you got yeah. at least one. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so my, what's your first, first rescue that you remember? So my, my first day in like in the command center, uh, you know, still in traps sitting next to the, like the search and rescue planner desk, trying to figure out like how it all worked. Uh, and, you know, I hadn't met everybody yet. And uh, so the the way that the that the command center was set up is we had like a dedicated search and rescue line that uh, you know that number was is public and then all of the the different nine one one call centers that we worked with they all you know knew that line uh, so when that line rang everybody you know you can see which one it is everybody picks up and listens and it's it's a whole thing. So the line rang and the guy I was sitting next to him was like, hey, this, this is the search and rescue line. This is real. And I was like, all right, like we're doing it. Uh, picked up the phone, everybody everybody listened. So what what had happened was a, uh, a sailboat had run aground under a bridge and he like didn't have a radio, didn't have a cell phone, didn't have anything, but he had flares and he was shooting flares at cars going like going over the bridge and so all these folks were calling 911 and they were like it's raining balls of fire from the sky <laughs> and, uh i remember hearing that and like thinking like what is happening <laughs> what do you mean it's raining balls of fire from the sky why is how is this our problem and uh and yeah we had you know the the senior chief that was the cdo was like like this is fine we got this like we're we're gonna figure it out and uh you know went and checked on the guy picked him up and like in terms of like you know complexity of the rescue it was very vanilla but like just starting with like yeah so sometimes people like you know would i have expected that somebody was shooting flares at cars absolutely not and everybody was like yeah man like this job's crazy like <laughs> and oh yeah, my I, gosh i remember calling my wife leaving that day and i was like this is exactly where i want to be right now like this is the kind of stuff <laughs> <laughs> that i want to be involved in like this was oh my gosh so cool that's awesome uh now with with you in the command center because there again there are not too many people what kind of assets are you sending out like so to that have... to that one in particular so that one in particular we sent uh we sent one boat we sent a, a small boat i think it was a 45 from from a station um so yeah no helicopter <laughs> but i think so uh it was sector hampton roads now sector virginia so we had a handful of small boat stations uh uh pretty uh interesting aor because we had kind of like the whole chesapeake bay but then also all the the offshore coverage oh wow um, so the like the folks who owned most of the the offshore coverage we're in like the, the very southern part of our AOR because the whole eastern shore of Virginia is uh, kind of you know, blocks everybody from from accessing the bay. Um, so I think we were usually pretty quick on the trigger to to pull air assets in uh, just because, you know, we're not going to send somebody from the south side, like, you know, way, way, way yeah. north. Um, and then we also had... Uh, a whole relationship to manage with uh, the Navy because so in Norfolk, that's where like the training squadrons are. The, so there's, there's almost always some kind of rotary wing Navy asset that's up training. Like there's probably one up, you know, up right now. And so there was always kind of this back and forth of like, Hey, do you have anybody up? Are they competent? Like, can we use them? And uh, we were, yeah. Anytime we were able to use some of those Navy assets, we'd, we'd like to, uh, and it was usually a flip of the coin of if they were, if they were, you know, stoked to break away from it or whatever training thing they were doing, or if they were like, this is, this training is important. This is national defense. We're like, no, all right, guys. Like, <laughs> um, uh -huh. Yep. We know. Was, we know. <laughs> yeah. Man, there's a story there about uh, the difference between, you know, the, the Navy and the Coast Guard and just the number of assets. So the, you know, so we would use 60s out of out of uh, Elizabeth City, and it's like yep. you know they've got you know, 
fewer than five helicopters, right? Like, and, and maybe, hopefully, you know, hopefully at least two that are, <laughs> that are fixed and operational. And that's not a knock on them. That's just how it rolls. And uh, by comparison, like, you know, on the seawall, Naval Base Norfolk, they've got probably infinite 60s just like <laughs> that they can conjure and we had we had a case where uh somebody somebody called in a flare and i was like hey i think i i think i saw a flare and we we're like all right like let's call the navy let's see if they have anybody up and they were like yeah we've got a 60 that that's flying in that area you want them to do a pass through it was like yeah absolutely that'd be great thanks and then uh they you know so they did they they cruised through the area and then we were like hey nothing seen we're like all right great thanks and we were we kind of went back to going about our business and then the 60 called back and said hey like we just refueled we're heading back out and i called you know i called my wing and we're spinning up you know three other helicopters and we called in all of the rest of the like on duty folks we're gonna have like you know potentially eight helicopters for you in the next 30 minutes and we we're like <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> everybody 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 cool it this was like a couple days before thanksgiving too like we definitely pulled people away from like their families like, what are you doing eight helicopters this sir we're the coast guard we don't know what we're, <laughs> we don't get eight helicopters that's like that's bananas <laughs> for like for that's amazing yeah oh it was, my gosh <laughs> it was it was cool but uh Suddenly Different. I got a warm and fuzzy. I got backup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Dang, that's crazy. Now, now I'm I'm curious. I, I I need another one. What what else have you been called? What what's weird that comes in? Oh, man, there's something that stands are, out that's super weird. People are crazy. I used to keep a I mean I, I still have it somewhere. Uh, I used to keep like a log, like one of those green government log books of like all this like all the crazy stuff that like people would either say on the radio or the stuff that people would like call about. We probably got a call about aliens once a month. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, just, awesome. it's over the water. That that's you know that's the Coast Guard. We're like, sure. <laughs> there are yeah a couple people that uh, <sighs> there was a so in Norfolk, Virginia, when you when you come across the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel, it, it kind of takes you right by the the Navy base. Um, and on the Navy base, they, uh, they teach, they teach sailing to like little sailboats that, that go out. And in the summer, I think it's like a week long course. And so I think every, it's like every Tuesday morning, they take these like 10 sailboats out with whoever's in their sailing course and they, they capsize them, they flip them over, uh, so they can teach everybody how to ride them. And like clockwork, people driving on the bridge there's 10 boats that just flipped over. I just watched them all flip over. And we're like, okay. Like we called the Navy base like, hey, you guys flipping boats over? And they'd be like, yep. I'm like, all right, sick. Everybody good? Like, yep, thanks. But ev like every single week we would, you know, we would get somebody. Uh, you know which, what? Thank you yeah. for not calling us for that. Yeah. Just throwing <laughs> yeah. that out there, right? right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The So those we had... Uh, yeah, there's I'm trying to think there's a yeah, I so there was one that I ended up writing an article about this. Uh and it's not one that I sent you, but uh there was a, a woman that called us and she was like, Hey, my my husband went surfing this morning and you know, he's he's not back yet. He he should he's he's normally back by now. I think he should be back. He's not answering his phone. And we we're like, ah, yep, like. You called. You called the right folks. Thank, like, thanks for calling us. Uh, do, do you know where he normally serves? And she was like, "Well, we live. We live in Virginia Beach. Sometimes he drives down to Cape Hatteras, and sometimes he drives up to like uh, Assateague. So, like, that's you know, sometimes he drives far. <laughs> sometimes he drives point. three hours yeah. south. Sometimes he drives three hours north." Okay, oh so gosh. effectively the entire coast of North Carolina and Virginia, that's <laughs> like is our possible area, and like, and you you don't know where he went. She's like, yeah, I mean, he never tells me. Like, ah. <laughs> like <laughs> that's like okay, so some yeah, somewhere between 
you know, the, the southern outer banks and Maryland, maybe someone is surfing. Uh, and I ended up writing this article about like, you know, if if you're if you're going to surf alone, like I'm a search and rescue planner, and here's all the information that that we need to start looking for you. And I kind of broke it down in like a, like a standard text. And I I had a, a you know, I had this text in my phone that like when I would go surf by myself, I would like fill it out and I'd send it to my wife of like going surfing. Here's when I'm getting in the water. Here's when I'm planning on being out of the water. Here's where I parked my car. Uh, here's what I'm wearing. Here's my board. And like, if you don't hear from me by this time, call the Coast Guard at this number and read them this text. And then I broke down, like, here's all the information that, like, the search and rescue planners need. You know, here's why it's important that they know where your car is. If we get to the beach and your car's still there and it's locked, like, okay, we're going to assume you're still in the water. Like, uh, and that was, that was cool. And it got some play in, like, some, some like, you know, surfing communities and, and surfing websites, which was kind of neat. But, nice. yeah. But that was the worst possible, like... <laughs> That's yeah, ridiculous. Area. That's uh, you know, I've heard other stories like that where guys go fishing and and the wives call back and they're like, Oh, we he's not back yet. He should be back by now. And the first question is, Well, where did he where does he go fishing? I don't know. Okay, yeah. so now we've got the entire ocean to look for. Cool. <laughs> yeah, you, right. It, all right. So actually, the guy that, that told me this story was down in South Africa, and his was he ended up calling some of his his fishing buddies. I was like, all right, where does he normally go? Oh, he usually goes to this one, this one, and this one. Okay, now we've got three to yeah. look for. Cool. We've narrowed it down. But yeah, a flow plan, a trail plan, a yeah, hike exactly. plan, a plan. Yeah. Just give Just, somebody a plan. Yeah, ab absolutely. <laughs> Dang, yeah. man. Um, you mentioned it right here, and that was that you've actually written quite a few articles, and I'd like to bring a couple of them up if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Let's. So. This is super cool to me because you wrote, um, let's see, well, I'm, I'm going to give you the three that you wrote me, but two of them specifically I want. Uh, so this one right here, close and weird encounters at White House Gate and stuff that people come up to. You said you're a disaster management for the White House. So yeah. that's that's kind of funny to me. Um, I, I am going to skip that one. So everybody, you guys go search on that one on your own. This one though, searching for a beautiful woman. So this yeah. is off uh, Scuttlebutt Sailing News. And the, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm going to read a bunch of this. Is that is it, are you good with that? Yeah, yeah, go for it. All right, cool. So uh, if I scroll down a little bit, it's going to be in late summer of 2017, a local 911 call center forwarded a distressed call to my team. This wasn't uncommon. We maintain good working relationships with the 911 call centers. When people called 911, the issue... That, you, that could be more appropriately handled by the Coast Guard than local authorities. The call center would patch the caller through to us and we'd take it over. In this instance, our dedicated search and rescue phone line rang with a caller ID showing County's 911 call center. As a matter of practice, everyone on our team picked up their headsets to listen. As one person would take the lead on the call, someone else would take notes, another would start notifying partners, and the rest of the team would start creating search patterns, preparing broadcasts, running drift simulations, and documenting the situation as well as all as we all listened. Quote, we, hey, we have a guy on a sailboat whose girlfriend fell overboard. They're in the river, and he's not a sailor. Got it. Thanks. Beep. All right, sir, we've got you on with the Coast Guard. Process engaged, knowing that we are already behind the working and working against the clock. We were finishing the critical details that would allow us to launch our appropriate assets. Where did the woman fall overboard? When did it happen? Who and what are we looking for? Later on, the caller would explain that his girlfriend, an experienced sailor, had taken him on an evening cruise. It was the first time on a sailboat. While hanging over the side of the boat to adjust some rigging, the wake from a passing ship rocked the boat and caused her to fall overboard. The sails and rudder were locked into place to allow them to cruise, and our caller didn't know how to turn the boat around or what to do. She was not wearing a life jacket. Embarrassed, the caller admitted that 
They didn't have GPS and didn't know where he was, but he knew the name of the marina that they left from. A rough estimate time is when they left, where the direction they proceeded in the river. That would have to be good enough. His girlfriend had fallen overboard about five minutes prior to the point of the call. Then came the final question to our initial push. Quote, can you give us a description of who we are looking for? What do you mean? He responded. Your girlfriend. Can you give us a physical description? What does she look like? Response. Oh, yeah. She's uh, tall, thin. She's wearing a blue bikini bottoms, a black bikini top. And I'll tell you what. She's fucking beautiful. Just stunning. Oh, she is gorgeous. <laughs> Dude, I I'm going to end it right there because that's just freaking hilarious. This is the <laughs> stuff that you guys get over the radio before calling us. We yeah. don't know any of this. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And that was like, that was, I mean, that that is word for word what he said. And we had said like, hey, like, we're going to tell people, you know, we explained it. Like, we're telling people who to be on the lookout for. So we need to know what she looks like. And yeah, just, oh, she's fuck. She's be like, he was just, his tone too is like, she's gorgeous. Like, uh, <laughs> and there's like, so there's the kind of Coast Guard policy where it's like, you you take what people give you and, you know, verbatim, because if, if I'm making an assumption of like, mm, I think he meant, you know, whatever, there's like potentially some, some liability there. And uh, I remember like, so the person running the call, like put that in it, like put it in the missile, put it into the system that gets shared with everybody and so she put you know tall like wearing you know whatever whatever the, the bikini colors were and then like woman is described as like beautiful comma gorgeous comma stunning and sent that out so like all of our our partners uh received this thing like all right be on the lookout for a beautiful gorgeous woman uh and yeah like we all got such a kick out of that and so we we ended up we ended up finding her. So she she had swam over to uh like to the the shore bank of the river, and we we picked her up, and we 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 told her about this too. We were like, hey, like just so you know, like we asked your boyfriend like for a physical description of you, and he described you this way. He described you as like gorgeous. Like before he told us anything else, you know, beyond that you were like tall, you know. Uh, he described you as gorgeous, and she like she thought it was really funny and uh during our debrief because like if we, we we have a search and rescue case with a positive result we want to tear it apart to see like what parts of you know the case where did our decision making you know really lead us to the positive result so we pulled everybody into the call <laughs> i'm like running through the script like all right you know here's the timeline of everything that happened here's the result uh does anybody want to point to anything that led to this search and rescue case's positive result and the coxswain from the, the small boat was like, yeah, that was a very accurate description of the missing person. It was like super accurate. And, uh, it was, oh my uh, gosh. it was, it was good. And yeah, I think, I think I, I put it in at the end of the article, but like, if I'm ever missing, I hope I'm described as like charming, handsome, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, please. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. Oh my gosh. Man, that's hilarious. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so funny. Is, you know, what you saying. guys get, yeah, what you guys get in the radio room and, and look over the phone is, you, we actually kind of laugh. So I'm more of the operator. I'm not in the radio room. I don't get those phone calls. I get yeah. the next call. Flip the alarm, launch them. And at yeah. that point, you guys have already filtered out all the BS and gotten us to, hey, here's the coordinates. Here's the beginning of your search pattern. Here's the beginning of search area. And then half the time, you know, you guys send us over land. And even though we're searching the water, we're like, why are we going over land? What is this? Computer yeah. generated. I know, but it's right. annoying. All right. <laughs> he, there's a, I've got an aviation story for you. So we had a, it was a fishing boat, super far offshore that was uh, taken on, taken on water. Not super rapidly. It's not like the boat was like actively sinking, but they were concerned about it. So we we sent a 60 out and they were going to be outside of comms range. So we put a C-130 up uh, to relay comms. And uh, the 60 was out there kind of watching them, talking them through some stuff. Uh, fuel was an issue. So we're going to send the first 60 back, send the second 60, uh, send the second helicopter out. 
And we ended up with, you know, maybe a 20 to 30 minute period with no rotary asset above this boat. C-130 still out there cruising around. And we, uh, you know, we were just following our process and we, we asked the C-130 like, Hey, can you guys go check on, on that boat? Like how, how are they doing? Everything okay? The C-130 came back and said, yeah, we're at like, you know, 20,000 feet or, or whatever it was, you know, we're, we're up above the clouds, but I, you know, we have no idea how they're doing. And we asked like, well, can you like, can you go down and check? And they came back and said like, what, you know, what are we, what are we clear to go to? What altitude, you know, are, are we allowed to, to decrease to? And none of us are aviators. We all looked around the room. We we're like the 200 feet. Like, does that, <laughs> does that sound okay? And they came back and they're like, sorry, like, two zero zero question and we were like yeah i don't know like you're the pilot that that's fine for us and they came back like fuck yeah over <laughs> and yeah i think like these guys just <laughs> dive bombed this <laughs> this fishing boat you know maybe saw him for half a second <laughs> and then came back up and they were like yeah everything looks fine <laughs> but uh yeah, we heard we heard from that, or we heard back from them afterwards. They were like, "We never get to do that." <laughs> like, thanks so much. Uh, I love how you just cleared them down. And you have no idea what you just cleared them to do. <laughs> you guys know what you're doing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Don't hit the water. Got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, rather hilarious. We're gonna divert real quick to thank our sponsor, Breeze Eastern the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. All right, let me go to the next one, man. Uh, so this yeah. next article that you wrote uh, is in, so it's disaster tourists get in the yeah. way more often, oh, sorry, more than they help the at the disaster. And this is cool because, and this is like a little bit of your passion right here is the yeah. people showing up to help that have no business showing up to help. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> so I like, so the, the background to, to this article is I'd spent uh, about six months working in the Bahamas, uh, doing, doing research, collecting, collecting data, uh, but had worked really closely with uh, the National Emergency Management or uh, Agency, yeah, NEMA, which is their their FEMA equivalent. Um, and one of the the kind of the big things we had we had worked on is uh, issues relating to Haitian migrants in Abaco. There are a bunch of like shanty towns, a bunch of kind of camps, um, and it was tricky because the so NEMA wanted to make sure that all of their warehouses and shelters and stuff could account for everybody that was on the island. But every time that the government went up to Abaco to try to figure out how many Haitians were in the shanty towns, everybody scatters because they're afraid of being deported. They don't really want to be counted. Uh, there's there's some of that that goes on. Um, so had been had been intimately involved with trying to prepare for something like a major hurricane for Abaco, and then Hurricane Dorian is remains the strongest hurricane in uh, the in the Atlantic Basin. Uh, so sustained winds of 220 knots, which like in a lifetime wow. of sailing and search and rescue, like that number doesn't mean anything to me. That's like standing on a, you know, on the wing of an airplane. Um, so, I mean, absolutely uh, big time devastation. That's the hurricane that I rode out in the Bahamas. Uh, I've got some pictures on my phone. Of, they were sending empty planes to the Bahamas to like evacuate all the tourists. And I, I took one of them and I was the only person on the plane flying into the Bahamas, you know, a couple of <laughs> days before a hurricane. Uh, nice. I, I asked the, I asked the flight attendant cause I was sitting, you know, in 25 C or wherever I was in the back of the plane. I was like, can I just sit up at the front? Can I sit in first class? And they were like, you're the only one here. <laughs> like, sure. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. So for the record, that never happens to me. I can never bump yeah. up the first class. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh was in the Bahamas kind of, you know, from before the storm and then and helped kind of navigate all the incoming international organizations because there, there was a big influx. Um, and yeah, the so that's the background kind of to this piece was was ended up doing basically like planning section chief stuff, information and planning 
uh, emergency support function. I was the lead for that. Um, so did a lot of briefing all these international groups that were coming in to support the response, leading like the NGO coordination briefs, uh, sharing a lot of the information products and things that were coming through. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, based on kind of what I'm about to talk about, you know, um, when I was leaving the Bahamas after that response, uh, I was sitting on the plane, like you know, we hadn't even left the Bahamas yet and just started like rage scribbling kind of the outline to this article. Um, and what had, what had happened was, so the, the, the Bahamas are, are so close to, to the States and Nassau. So the capital was relatively, uh, like relatively fine from the hurricane. So most of the, and that's where all the flights to the Bahamas are. So all of the the issues for the response were were in, in other islands, but people could you could still book a flight to Nassau, no problem. So we saw a bunch of folks who came over and like wanted to help, and some of that was some of that was legitimate, like they're and like not trying to uh, smash anybody, but like there were like church groups that came over and were like, hey, you know, we don't know what we're doing, but we want to help, and there's an aspect of that like. We just need some bodies, right? We need people folding blankets. We need folks helping sort stuff. Like there's an aspect of that, that that's super helpful. But then there were the tourists and there were people who uh, were coming over who just wanted to go see it. And at the time, so Abaco's water infrastructure is, is supplied exclusively by uh, wells and well fields. Every single well field in Abaco had been uh, overtaken by storm surge so the entire water infrastructure for the island population of about seventeen thousand people the entire water infrastructure was smoked and uh you know we were talking about hey we have you know we need to make water or supply water for seventeen thousand people and we have kind of an error margin of, of about a day and a half before we run out of what what we were able to put into the tanks um so that was a problem we were dealing with and then uh, the, the person that's mentioned in this article, so it was in an NGO brief, and we had talked about, here's our, you know, here's our understanding of the unmet medical needs as a present. Here's our understanding of the unmet like telecom needs. Here's our, here's our understanding of the water situation. If you are not able to supply and source your own water in Abaco, you're taking it from somebody who is currently, you know, a, a victim of, of this hurricane. Um, so, you know, do not go if you are going to drain resources from people who desperately need them. Yeah. So we had had that talk. And then this, he was a kid. He was, you know, I, uh, he was probably in his early 20s. And he came up to me after the brief and he was like, hey, I need to be on the next flight to Abaco. And I was like, who are you? What do you do? What's like, what's your deal? And he was like, yeah, I'm raising awareness about uh, the impact of this hurricane like this is this event has dominated global news for a week now like that's that's not the need right now and he was like well i have like a pretty big social media following and i think like i think they all would be really interested in like what what i could do was like you just listen to me talk about how people need medicine people need medical attention people need water and you think i'm gonna put space on a barge or a helicopter for you to like go you know live stream something get the fuck out of here <laughs> and i think that what got me so spun up i think one he was what he was wearing like a brand new fly fishing vest and it's like are you prepared to supply your own shelter he's like well, no it's like where are you gonna get water from i don't know i'm gonna figure it out no you're not like you're not ready to do anything other than eat the granola bars that are in your fucking pockets and uh he what got me so spun up was he kept saying, hey, man, like, I'm just trying to help. Okay, here are all the things we need help with. We need help with, like, logistics. We need people at, like, the port in Nassau moving boxes and, like, sorting stuff. And, like, here are the things we need help with. And he was like, mm, well, that's not really what I came here to do. And it's like, that, like, time out. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. What you came here to do is irrelevant. You are not a subject matter expert you are not here with some certified program that has any kind of credibility you are here to do what we say is needed 
and you know because what what we say is needed is coming from you know what we're getting from the field yeah and it was just that that conflict of like hey man let me i'm just trying to do anything i can to help as long as it's getting me to abaco to take you know pictures and video of people who are in their absolute like worst moment and it's just ridiculous um yeah so i felt some kind of way about it uh kind of rage yeah rage scribbled that article and the the closing is you know people who say that like hey i'm i'm here to help like if you mean that you'll figure it out and i've i've no doubt like the the church groups that came over from south florida and are like whatever you need you need us folding blankets we'll do it like great that's like that that matters um if you're just saying hey i'm here to help as a cover to go do whatever it is you want to do expect you know no entry to nor nor quarter from uh the folks that do this for real um and that kind of leads to you know another piece about you know wanting to help isn't good enough i yeah. want people to be educated they're not going to let me be a teacher i don't want folks to you know i don't want folks to be sick they're not going to let me be a doctor just because you want to rescue people that's not good enough. You you need to, you know, you need to do the work beforehand. You need to be a pro at it before we let you do the things that that are exciting. I dude, that's that's right on point. There's actually a, a spot in the article. Uh, I gotta find it because I really like the way you you wrote this. Um oh yeah, right here. Finally, and uh, and while not all encompassing, the majority of those who could be called disaster tourists are amateurs in the sense that they are not formally trained in any aspect of disaster response or how to function in post-disaster environment. Those who enter a hazardous situation without understanding what they are really getting into are a liability. The reason search and rescue teams do not conduct operations mid-hurricane is so they can avoid becoming subjects of a search and rescue operation themselves. Poor situational awareness can turn would-be responders into additional victims. It was my favorite paragraph in the entire article. I'm like, yes! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, like, so simple. Like, basic, too. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't matter if you want to help. That doesn't make any of that, that doesn't make any of that go away. Uh, yeah. And it's like, and it's common. It happens, it happens all the time, which is a bummer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It keeps me, it keeps my job going though. I'm yeah, just yeah. I'm gonna throw that out there to you. All right. Yeah. You know, Brad, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate you being so passionate about that. Cause there, yeah. there are things that I'm passionate about within the rescue side of things that I do that I I embrace. And one of them for me is, is like going outside the old, like the old techniques. Maybe they still work. Maybe that's the best thing, but there are newer, better things that you can do. If you're not trying, if you're not moving forward, yeah. you're, you're falling behind. So. Yeah. Well, I, there's a, there's a bit of that too, that uh, it's, it's a phrase that like folks that have worked with me have, have absolutely heard me say it, but uh, it, it comes from kind of, it comes from the search and rescue world, but it, it's applied applied more broadly but you know search and rescue is mostly search uh and you know if if we knew where everybody was it would just be called rescue like we would just go get people um right and if in searching is like searching is not fun it is not exciting it is tedious it's methodical uh it is the the feeling of like i know my keys are here somewhere and i've already looked everywhere and i'm gonna start looking in places i i know my keys aren't just because i you know i need to like it's it's that feeling but like as a profession right uh but if you're not serious about the searching you're not serious about search and rescue if you're not serious about the work you're not serious about any of it and I think search and rescue, emergency management, disaster response, we attract a bunch of really like high-performing, high-caliber go-getters who want to go do the exciting thing. But when it's time to think about, uh, when it's time to think about, you know, the complexities involved in getting to the point where we can be effective in a dynamic situation, or when it's time to do the work, to prepare, to train, to, you know, get your mind and your body ready to go do the thing. Uh, you know, that work sucks in comparison, 
but you got to do it. And if you're not serious about it, you're not serious about the rest of it. And I don't have any time for you. Uh, and that's, that's something I think, you know, we, it's not just about going out and doing the rescue, you know, because I think how much, how much of your time is spent doing actual rescues versus like being ready to do them. It's uh, it's ridiculous how much time we're spent ready, even training. And then yeah. when we get out on a search mission in general, and we we've all flown on them, whether it's a flare sighting or the over overdue boat, uh, whatever. Hey, I got lost in the woods. Okay, yeah, we're doing grid searches. We're doing expanding squares. We're doing ladder searches or parallel searches or whatever. Yeah, yeah. hours of flying, hours. And- and I, and I don't think you get to I don't think you get to present yourself as a professional in the space if you're like yeah that part sucks let me know let me know when you guys find them and I'll I'll take care of the rest like that's not how that's just not how it works nope uh, it is kind of funny though so let me let me give you an aspect from our side of it because yeah. that's that's hilarious is if if the alarm goes over and there's like you know hey overdue boat off the case all of us are like oh gosh yeah, really yeah, yeah. And yeah. and sometimes there'll be the new guy. I'll be like, I'll do it. And I actually, I just had a guy on here, Gabe Sage. He was like, yeah, yeah, I'll take that. Ended up rescuing like three guys. So <laughs> yeah. do the work, do the right. search. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's, and that's the, the, I think in like the emergency management side, like response is just such a small piece of, of the broader puzzle. And so like the, the things that drive vulnerability or disaster preparedness, like we can work on those problems right now. Like that's, we don't have to wait for something bad to happen to anticipate the things that people are going to struggle with. Uh, but if you're like, Oh, nope, I'm just a response person. Like that's, that's, you know, that's left of the problem. That's someone else's like, then you're not, you're not as prepared for that response as, as you could be. Uh, and I think when it, when it comes time to, be the responder to you know to be the the rescuer uh there's a, a i forget the name of the article but uh there's a bit about how like emergency management and disaster response is jazz music and how jazz musicians are some of music's best improvisers they can step into you know any kind of song any tempo any key and you know rip an improvised uh an improvised performance but how do you how do you get to the point where you can do that you're they're not just playing random notes they're not making random musical decisions you know it's it's through extensive if not exhaustive preparation to be able to step into a dynamic environment and you know do what needs to be done that's a that's emergency response that's disaster response like the the best dynamic decision makers aren't just winging it. Like they're they're adapting, you know, what what their training is, what their preparation had been, uh, because that preparation is extensive. And I know, like, so the incident command system and NIMS and stuff, like the best rollouts of that that I've ever seen, like the best rollouts of NIMS and ICS that I've ever seen, have not been strictly adherent to NIMS and ICS because everybody knows how to adapt it. To the to meet the needs of whatever situation we're actually working in, uh, yeah, disaster response is the same way. It's not just well the plan says you know next step is to you know do whatever. Or if you're you know doing a rescue and it's like well like we should be doing this, but I really think this situation needs you know something else. Uh, being able to make those kind of adjustments, you don't you don't get a free pass. You don't just get to wing it. Like you get to adjust your training and your preparation based on having trained and prepared extensively, uh, which I think is like a, a mental shift that some people like don't don't really get. You see others that are experienced, that know what they're doing. You see other folks kind of break from the plan or adjust things on the fly. And when you're new, you're like, oh, we just don't care about the plan. All right, like I can do whatever I want. Like, absolutely not. That's not how it works. No, no. stick to the plan. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I always like that because when when you're talking, when you're trying to get people kind of excited about, you know, being a emergency management disaster response, you know, rescue decision maker. When you say like, yeah, it's jazz music, people are always kind of like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> but 
but I, yeah, I love that analogy. That's a good analogy. Yeah. I mean, we, that's the same thing with us. Once we get in the field, this is great. I love this conversation just, just because <laughs> it, they, we live the same world, but on totally different sides of the radio. So for me, it's I, okay. You guys give us a grid search and or a, a ladder search. And all of a sudden it goes 20 miles inland. Well, we're not going to do that. So we will hit the coast and then we'll turn around and come back and say, Hey guys, we're not, we're not doing that. There's no way he climbed up the mountain to get this far. And you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. But that's yeah. stuff that we're making calls on scene reporting back to you saying, Hey, we're going to alter this a little bit because of this and this Roger. Simple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just like, ah, we don't have to listen to them. It's like, no, we're making a, an informed decision based on the situation that we're in. Uh, and that's like, that's how it works. It's teamwork, baby. <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's, Dude, that's like, awesome. yeah. And I think like, if there's something that like, I've kind of taken through from search and rescue into like disaster response, it's that bit of like, yeah, like I don't have all the information, but like, it's time to make a decision anyway. Um, you know, the the whole bit of like analysis, paralysis, and you, you'll get you'll get folks in the emergency management and disaster response space that, that you know, they'll want to wait until they have all of the information. Um, and that's just not the world that like I kind of cut my teeth in where like, hey, I've got my my search and rescue checklist, but they stopped answering the radio. And I I didn't get to fill out my whole checklist but that's what we got. Like we're going with the information that we have. It was a line from search and rescue school of, uh, you know, we, we sometimes make decisions with a hundred percent consequence based on 50% information, but that's what it is. That's the job. Uh, which is like for folks who I think come into either, you know, international development, relief, disaster management, perhaps more traditionally than, than kind of crossing over from search and rescue, like that's a that's uh that's a situation that makes people uncomfortable of I need to make a decision and I don't have all, I don't have enough information. Uh and if there's if there's anything that I've seen, you know, people with search and rescue backgrounds really, you know, really, really succeed in in then broader disaster management space. It's it's that. It's hey, uh, here's the information I have and here's what I think good enough looks like. It's not perfect. Here's all the information I'd like to have, but this is what, you know, I'm comfortable moving forward with this based on what I currently understand. Uh, Cause that, that's just how it works. And then we start the yeah. rotor head. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Brad. So now let me ask this dude, cause this is, this is awesome, but you've been doing this for a long time. So what advice would you give to, so those that are doing it right now that are just coming in, what are things that you've learned that you'd be like, yeah, don't do that. Or yeah, do that. Yeah. Uh, so stealing, stealing this, this quote from a, a mentor of, of mine, uh, a guy named Tim, Tim Manning, but uh, nobody, nobody in this field uh, in you know emergency management or disaster response, nobody in this field is too important for you. Uh, you know, if, if someone is going to give you uh, you know, you are, you are always allowed to ask for a moment of someone's time and attention. And if they choose to give it to you, be gracious, don't waste it. And the flip side is you will never be too important for anybody in this field. If nobody owes you a moment of their time or attention, they choose to give it to you, be gracious, don't waste it. Uh, and I, I found that to be true. Uh, you know, kind of cold calling people when I was, when I was looking at getting out of the Coast Guard and kind of broadening, you know, Hey, I, th I think I understand this search and rescue piece, but I know that there's kind of this whole world of emergency management out there. Uh, I would I would hit people up on LinkedIn. I would like ask people, you know, hey, do you know anybody that's doing emergency management? And uh, I had kind of this line about like, I think you're doing what I want to be doing. How like nice. how do I get there? I don't think I ever had a single person be like, Meh, I'm not going to talk to you. Like I think everybody I asked gave me time and gave me good advice and kind of told me their story and uh through like pretty senior government folks um yeah and i reach out to people find people who are doing what you want to be doing uh and and hit them up and i think that applies 
perhaps more so to people who are already in the field than than folks who are looking to get into it uh because the the emergency management and disaster management field behaves less like a like a single field and more kind of like a federation of like loosely aligned fields like if, if you're doing hazard mitigation and working with insurance companies and you know people that write building codes like you are in a very different part of emergency management than like the stuff that you're doing or the stuff that you know i'm doing um so like the the field is immense uh and it's broad and it's got a bunch of really cool people in it so talk to them i think that's probably the the biggest piece and then another question is going to be how like or so me how would i get into what you're doing um yeah so uh there's no like golden path for uh emergency management why would there be yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's there's like not really uh i mean I, i think that the kind of like cheeky answer is like you just do it you start like applying to emergency management jobs and and see how it goes uh but i think the one of the things that like i i spent a lot of time kind of talking about and thinking about with with you know folks who are in the field so so i i went back to for me it started with going back to school uh i got a, a you know a master's degree in emergency and disaster management and that was not because there's a requirement. Like, I don't think there's a single job that I became, you know, that I wasn't qualified for, that got a master's degree, you know, was, was again qualified for. Um, you know, so it wasn't about checking the box. It was really about spending time getting into the weeds of of the problem set. And that was super valuable for me. And I think like anything, you know, that those opportunities are what you make them. And, and, you know, I, I felt like I had a duty to make the most out of it. And, you know, I, I think I'm in a present place now, like there's not a single job that is presently unaccessible to me that like, if I went out and got, you know, a doctorate or a PhD that would suddenly come on the table, especially like operational jobs. But, uh, you know, currently thinking about going back to school, cause I want to spend time getting into the weeds of, of the problem set. So, uh, there's this debate in the emergency and disaster management space about, you know, who takes precedence, the operational folks or the, the academic folks. And the, the piece that nobody likes to acknowledge is like, it's both. Like the people that have a foot in both worlds are the ones that everybody wants to hire, wants to work with, wants to, you know, to have on the line, to have in the trenches when it's time to go do the shit. And uh, you can have a PhD in, you know, social disruption with a focus in emergency management but if you've never done anything what good is what good is all that knowledge doing similarly you know you could have been a, a fire chief police chief emergency manager you know whatever for 30 plus years but like but if you don't know why we're doing things a certain way yeah you know, what, what are you doing other than treading water why are we why are we not advancing we need to understand how things are changing i mean i think everything in the field has shifted post-COVID. We should take all of our books, our manuals, everything, like everything should have an asterisk that was written pre-COVID because we've learned so much and need to adapt everything. So if, if you know, you can be operational, uh, I, that's, that's where we actually do stuff. Um, but if you're not trying to understand why we do stuff, you know, you're, you're holding the spot that, that somebody who understands it better, you know, could, could be moving into. So the, the answer is both. You need to understand what we're doing and you need to know how to apply that understanding. Right. On. And however, however you get there, there's not like, a, right. yeah, however you get there uh, is valid. All right. Just start calling people, LinkedIn. What else do you say? You yeah. just call everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love it. Yeah. That, that worked for me when, oh, so when I was going to get out of the Coast Guard, I like, oh man, I like, I called so many people, uh, Cause I had, so my, my wife's in the Navy, she was deployed. Uh, and I had like started looking at, you know, do I want to stay in the Coast Guard? Do I want to do other things? And like, I had this kind of like, I had the free time and I had like, if I was at all interested in something, I was like trying to call people about it, talk to people about it, shadow somebody. Uh, and that was a really positive experience for me. Uh, one, because like, I got to learn a bunch of really cool stuff, but two, I feel like I got to see how easy it is for people to like try to take you under their wing and like 
that was potentially more impactful than like the stuff that I was learning or doing. Right on. Nice, man. Nice. I love it. Yeah. And here you are. And here we yeah, are. Yeah. You moved out back to Charlotte to like yeah. do this whole thing there. I love it, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Brad, this has been an absolute treat for me. Thank you so much for coming on and joining me. Uh, just giving us the, like the inside scoop of the, the, behind the scenes stuff that you guys do it's it's awesome so thank you yeah uh thanks for having me on this is really this is really fun it's cool i appreciate the work you're doing oh thanks man i appreciate it no it's good no you know i got guys like you that come on and tell your stories and then yeah that's why everybody listens it's not me it's you <laughs> hey yeah, i'll tell cool. you what uh the next time i get back to charlotte if you're there maybe we go sailing hit yeah. lake norman up i'm just saying oh, for sure yeah Definitely. Buddy, I'm in. Yeah. You might teach me a thing or two. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. I'm really, really good with this. Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. Man. Thanks, brother. Before we log off, I wanted to go over something just a little bit more in detail from our conversation with Brad. Love the fact that he came on to drop us some mega knowledge on what they do in the operations center and the call center and getting us all deployed. Well, I wanted to back that up a little bit. So I did a little research online and Brad sent me a little bit of information, which I'm going to show to you guys right here. And we're going to talk about it. So the people that are in the watch standing office and the ones that are taking the call, they have a lot of information they're trying to get. And they're trying to maximize that information for all of us that are going out on the operational side to go get those in distress. Okay. So with that said, one of the things that comes in is SAR reports. So they're trying to get as much information as they can. Radio calls, frequencies, types of communications that we have with people. Uh, in the initial SAR checklist that maybe the U.S. Coast Guard might use is position. What is the last known position of the people? A lot long, a geographical reference. How many people? The number of people on board, adults, children, total. The nature of the distress. What is actually going on? What's wrong? And then a description of the vessel, of the raft, of the board, like Brad talked about. Anything that we can get to get us out to you. Make, model, color. What are you wearing? How are we going to be able to see you? Is there an EPIRB going off? All these questions are going to come up. And the more information that we can get from everybody out there, the better. So there's another one where they talk about a, a medevac nine line. We use that all the time for when a medical case comes up and we have to go get somebody. Again, location, where are you? How are we communicating? Number of patients, how critical are they? What kind of emergency are we coming out to? Special requirements, what are we gonna need? All right, there are a lot of things that we're trying to do. In addition to that, I'm going to talk about one more thing, which is help us help you. You help us, we help you. The more information we have, the better. So where is your starting point? Where is your destination? Intended travel route? Where are you going? And do you have any other plans that are in between? Other uh, things that pop up might be level of experience. Are you an expert? Or are you just an average person that's going out hiking in first, second, third time ever, right? What do you have on you? What do you have with you? Do you have water, food, matches, flashlight, whistle, cell phone, etc.? Do us a favor and alert somebody. Let them know your float plan, which is going out in a vessel and you're going to give a trip where you're going and where you're coming back from or a hike plan, hiking out and coming back. This is where I'm entering the trail. This is where I'm hiking out. This is where I'm coming back. Always in a timeline. We're looking for a timeline because we need to know like how long you've been out, how long you're gonna be out, and when you're gonna be back. This all comes into play when it comes to the Search and Rescue Coordination Center. And then when they give us the information as operators, we're going out to start at that first known or the last known location. And then we're going to start our search from there. So I hope this helped you guys. I wish you guys all the best. Get out there, be safe. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. 
But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at The Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode, Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Hey, reminder, rule number one, don't be effing lazy.